Hello, and welcome back to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I am the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 45, and it is our fourth episode of season two. This week, Brian and I are welcoming Chad Ragsdale from Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. Chad has been a professor of Ozark since 2005, teaching hermeneutics and apologetics, and recently took the role of academic dean. We talked with Chad about his new book and the essentials of Christian faith, his view on the nature of apologetics today, and what parents need to be teaching their children to prepare them for the world today. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that you can find us at thebiblebistro.com, on Instagram and Facebook at The Bible Bistro, and on YouTube at Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. We have also set up a Patreon account, so if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support our continued work, you can do that as well. You can find a link for that in the show notes, but also by going to the website, thebiblebistro.com, and clicking on the link at the top. All right, let's jump right in with our conversation with Chad Ragsdale. Hey, Brian, welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, Ryan, how's you, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm good. doing all right. Good. Glad to be back here in the bistro. It is always good. It, it, any bistro day is a good day, I always say. So. You do always say that. <laughs> Every and, episode, I think you say that. And fact. you know what's really cool is we have we have a guest in the bistro today. We do have a guest in the it's bistro. A, it's, uh, any any bistro day we have a guest in the bistro is a good day, too. So Yeah, did you bring the snacks for the guest? I, we talked about that before. <laughs> I, I'm drinking. I'm actually drinking Starbucks. I usually do, do, do my own brew, but I was kind of in a hurry today, and I think so well, let me introduce before I ask what he's drinking. Let me introduce uh, our guest today is Chad Ragsdale. Uh, Hello, how are you doing today? Yes. I'm great. <laughs> Chad Ryan and I know Chad uh, because he was a fellow student, uh, a little ahead of uh, Ryan at uh, the school that where we knew each other, Lincoln Christian University. And uh, Chad was a student of mine, apparently in at least one class, which. <laughs> I'd yeah, it's like my freshman or sophomore year. Oh, okay. Well, I'd forgotten about that until he he reminded me just a few minutes ago. But uh, he was a student where I was a professor, and uh, he is now uh, the academic dean and teaches New Testament hermeneutics at um, Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, he's got some really interesting in, uh, interests, some things that I think he's going to share with us today. So we're really glad uh, to have him with us. So anyway, I was going to say all that to say, what are you drinking, Chad? I think you've got some. Uh, this is a little Earl Grey. Okay. Ooh, nice. Afternoon, afternoon tea. Well, I'm, I'm at the age now where it's coffee in the morning and tea in the afternoon. That's I, that's how I roll. I can have one coffee after lunch and then that's it for me. I can't have anything. <laughs> you're you're roasted then that, at that so. point. But, you know, Earl Grey, Earl Grey just sounds so sophisticated. Sounds right? highfalutin. <laughs> I don't now, know. Like, I just think of a drink that has gray in it. It just doesn't sound good to me. I don't know. What, what, I'm, not what you, a, I'm not a tea drinker. Are you drinking something there, Ryan? Do you have something to drink? So High quality H2O. H2O. That's it, right. It's good to yeah. stay hydrated. They say it's healthy yeah. for you. So that's what, they, that's what they say. I prefer to keep it at coffee. <laughs> the nutritionist. Know, the the nu- science is still out on that. <laughs> no, no, no. no so don't, Chad, get, don't get us started on that. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well, Brian, to go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, you well, go. so Chad, we welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit. I mean, I know Brian basically said everything, but go ahead and tell us a little bit but more about yourself. He was my student, and he was. He was yeah, that's it. That's all we need to know about all you. Right. But tell that us about one class, that one class set me on the path. Uh, that set him on the path that he's on today. So tell us a little bit who you are, the path that you have gone down, yeah. and and what you're what you're doing now. 
Yeah, so I've been here in Joplin, Missouri at Ozark. Uh, I've been here since 2005 and um, uh, married, three kids, um, two high schoolers wow. um, at the moment. My my son's a junior. My daughter is a sophomore. And um, and it's actually fun. It's a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. Um, as you kind of think through, man, what's it going to be like to have teenagers? And I just remember you know, being a teenager myself and just how <laughs> crazy that was, but it's, it's been, it's been fun. They're actually close enough in age that they actually hang out with the same crew of oh, friends cool. and stuff like that. And, Very good. Um, and then I have a six, uh, a sixth grader daughter too. And so, so three, three, great. three girls, is that what I'm hearing or no, no, I have one. My oldest is my oh, son. Okay. So two girls and, and a boy okay. daughter and 12 year old daughter. So life is very full. Life is very busy. Um, here at the college, um, I, I came down here in 2005, initially full-time professor. I was teaching mostly kind of Bible classes, biblical interpretation classes. Um, Brian, that's changed in recent years as my, uh, as my own kind of education has shifted. I, I got a doctorate uh, with JP, uh, JP Moreland out right. at uh, Talbot mm -hmm. um, uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and my, my teaching emphasis more is kind of in the line of philosophy and apologetics cool. now. Well, that's one of the things uh, we want to talk to you about is apologetics. That's, yeah. That's cool. And, um, and then I'm also doing obviously administrative stuff and that just is the joy of my life. I just, uh, <laughs> love doing as much administration I, as possible. I resisted, so. I resisted saying that you went to the dark side when you became academic <laughs> dean, but, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know if you guys are, are you guys office space fans? Have you seen yeah. the movie office yeah. space? Oh yeah. So, um, so this is this is a guy that I keep uh, on my shelf right next to my desk. Oh, it's that's Bill cool. Lundberg. Yeah, uh, yes. Just to to constantly remind me of my of the yeah. way people see me when I'm constantly yeah. asking them for reports, TPS and, reports. Yes. <laughs> uh, do, do you guys want? I, yeah, that sound like this guy. That's awesome. Do you want to guess what pop uh, figure I have in, on in my office? What's you want to guess? You want to uh, guess, Ryan? You've never seen it. Hold, hold I've on a never second. seen. Okay. Whoa. So this is and this is why everyone should watch on YouTube as well because <laughs> all this wonderful. We're showing content. each other our toys. Yes. What you have it? to you have to remember when you to understand this. You have to remember I'm pretty much a narcissist. So. Oh, Brian Johnson. <laughs> it's Brian Johnson from the from the Breakfast Club. Of our oh my god! Got that for me. So yeah, right, anyway, I don't have anything, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't Just have a me. Ryan Sarver pop <laughs> No, I don't. <laughs> no, that's no, cool. No. Well, well, Chad, we are glad you're here with us today. And there's there's a few things we want to talk to you about. One of them, uh, Chad, you wrote a book. Was that two years ago or how? Uh, just last year. Okay, last year. The last year was published, right? Yeah, right, right, right. And so um, he wrote a book. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that, about that process, about what that book's about. Kind of summarize it for us. And I had some questions about it. We both have read that and. Yeah, so it's it's called Christian convictions, um, and it's really it's really designed. Um, it's it's barely a hundred pages, so it's it's really designed um, for like small group settings, right. new members, classes, stuff like that. And you know, I know we've all had the experience of being in small groups or being in Sunday schools or whatever, where we're like, okay, we're going to go through a book, and then <laughs> you know, you start the first right. week and everybody reads the first chapter, but then life gets busy yeah. and some people enjoy reading more than others, you know? 
I wanted to actually write a book that was readable and that could be finished by really anyone. Um, I, to be honest, I wrote it a little bit with my son and his kind of D group in mind, okay. like upper class high school, right. college age students, just something that was accessible right. um, for that group. Um, the idea of the book, um, I guess, Brian, it started with um, something that I teach every semester in apologetics. So um, one of the things that I've noticed in apologetics is that a lot of Christians, especially young people, Christian young people, mm -hmm. they're burdened by attempting to defend every square inch of the territory uh, of right. Christian belief. Right. So somewhere along the way, they got it in their heads that to be a person of faith means that you have to have every single issue lined up properly and every single thing needs to be defended. Right. Um, I actually have a phrase for that that I use in the book. I call them epistemic legalists. Right. So yeah. we know what a, a moral legalist is a person who thinks that through my behavior, I'm going to earn the favor of God or maybe the judgment of God, but it's all based on my behavior, my moral behavior. And most people recognize that moral legalism is contrary to the gospel. Okay. Um, or at least they they certainly should right. if they've read Paul. Je or, Jesus said a few things about that. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, but yet epistemic legalism somehow is tolerated mm. in a lot of in a lot of our circles and what i mean by epistemic legalism is the assumption that unless you believe everything every single thing right. in exactly the right way then somehow god is not going to show favor right. to you you're not going to be shown grace and by right way i mean the way that i think about it is, is exactly <laughs> that's exactly right so right. um so what i do one of my very early uh, uh, classes in apologetics is I draw a big target up on the board and the target is meant to represent the sum total of everything that you believe as a Christian. And there are some things that exist just on the periphery of the target. So they're on there, but they're just on the, on the margins. But then there's other things, a few things that are at the bullseye, they're bullseye beliefs. And what I tell my students is, in doing apologetics, you really are focus, not just apologetics, but even in discipleship, like right. our, our focus needs to be on those bullseye Central beliefs. Things, yeah. And it doesn't mean that we ignore or dismiss everything else that's on the target. We don't. Right. You know, some of the things that are on the target are very important, even if they're not at the bullseye. Right. Um, but I don't want to get into this, into this um, mindset that says I have to, that everything on the target is of equal importance right? because it's not. Yeah. And, and I, I relate to what you're saying. Even as a young person, I can remember if you thought differently about me in any area. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're a different, you, you, you don't think the way that I do is, is unacceptable. So I, I thought it was value. I like that exercise you talked about kind of let it, giving them three yeah. minutes or a short period of time. I can't remember how long yeah. you said to write three sentences, basically that yeah. are the center of their faith. I thought it was really good. And, and let me go back to what you said about the book being short. I actually thought exactly the same thing you did as I read it. I thought this is a book you actually could use in a group and, yeah. and people would, you know, you could say to them, Hey, it's only gonna take you five minutes or so to read this chapter. Yeah. And then there were some, always some really good questions at the end of it. I thought it would be a really good study guide or a group. 
Yeah, when I when I told when I told my friends that I was publishing a book, I didn't actually. <laughs> this was my this was my COVID book, so okay. I uh, I was on sabbatical completing my my dissertation, and when COVID hit, everything else shut down, obviously. So I was able to get through my dissertation about two months earlier than I thought I was going to. Um, that's, a com- that's a common thing. Right? I didn't have anything else to do. And so I was contacted knowing I had this extra availability. Wow. I was contacted by renew.org okay. who was wanting to publish some books. And they're like, Hey, can you write like a 10, 11,000 word book on this right. topic? And it was awesome. But, but telling my friends, yeah, I wrote a book. I think some of them were expecting like this 200 page or 300 page. Like, right. And then I, I presented it to them and they're like, oh, okay. Well, that's, that's <laughs> where's the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, isn't that nice? This is a good start. So. <laughs> no, I thought, and it, it kind of comes out of, you know, we're, we're all a part of the restoration movement. We grew up in the restoration movement at least. And, and, uh, it comes from kind of the slogan that we have in the restoration movement about in, in, in matters of, um, in essentials, a lot of times we'll say unity in non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity or in all things love. Yeah. And you're kind of, you know, the problem is we often don't, it's hard to distinguish the essentials from the non-essentials. And I think you're yeah. trying to really get us to, to wrestle with that issue in this. And I thought that was good. That was, that was a hard chapter to write, Brian. Yeah. Um, because, Whenever you are ticket, one of the chapters in the book is, okay, what is on the bullseye? What are those essential beliefs? And I feel really confident and really comfortable with what what I articulated in the book as the bullseye beliefs. But I kid you not, within 30 minutes of the book going live on social (laughs) media, I had two people kind of chirping at me, not in a really aggressive way, but just you forgot challenging this. what I had right. articulated well, as a bullseye and, belief. And I do have an email coming out to you that has a list, <laughs> my list as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the way in one of the chapters you talk about, you, you give us two basically stories from your ministry life where, where you kind of give us the both sides of it, where someone has said to you, oh, your belief is not strong enough in this area, but in another case, well, your belief is, is kind of you know, too strong in this area. And, yeah. and, and the way I often will say it, I'll, I'll articulate, you know, I've lived in enough different places and been a part of enough different Christian communities. I'll go back and say one more thing. I, I really like also that you, you, you pointed out, and I, I kind of want to ask a question about this in a minute. You pointed out a lot of times when we talk about what being a Christian is, it's talks, it's a list of behaviors. Yeah. And, and I'll often talk about that in terms of, you know, the problem is every place you live, that list is different. It is. It has different links, and there are different things on it. There are different things that are at the top of the list, right? Yeah. And, and so it 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 really points out that there there we really should think carefully about what is essential yeah. and what is most important to our faith. Well, not I honestly, this did come from my experience teaching college students yeah. apologetics because I was noticing two different mistakes that that were being made amongst my students. Some of them, some of them were really operating under the assumption that there was no target at all. Right. That, you know, I might have my personal beliefs, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're essential for all people. It's just, you know, these are beliefs that are important to me. Even the central ones, even the central ones. Yeah, even the central ones. So there really wasn't a target, but then I, that was kind of the exception. More than norm was kind of the student coming to us with the assumption that the whole target was essential. And 
honestly, it just, it really is detrimental to people's faith to have that sort of very rigid legalistic understanding of, of belief. Well, and it, it honestly was leading to a lot of skepticism amongst my mm, students because when the whole target is essential, all it takes is one little pebble, one little rock thrown at the target and it kind of shatters. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think it was good that you started with that that first chapter about you know kind of refuting the idea that there are multiple ways uh, to God and, and and saying that there are some things that are central to our faith that we have to hold on to. Yeah. And, and then when someone challenges, that they usually start nibbling at the edges yeah. of those things that are those non-essentials. And so, just as you said, Chad, like when when that one pebble, wherever it may be thrown, if it's on that edge or not, if that edge gets torn up, then it's the whole system comes down. I was I was joking at a. Uh, so I went and spoke for a conference uh, a couple couple months ago, and they asked me to speak about my book. And um, the first the first thing that I said in my talk was, if I ever get around to writing an apologetics book, the title of the book will be, "Please stop asking me about dinosaurs." <laughs> um, that's going to be the title of my book. And um, and most of the people laughed. Most of the people thought, you know, they got the joke. Yeah, but a couple people. But like, I did. I was told afterwards by some of the organizers, like, you know, there were a few people that they were a little bit put off by the yeah. implication. And sure enough, later on that day, I got an email from somebody that attended that wanted to give me this whole thing, this whole spiel about, well, okay, here's what you should actually believe about dinosaurs. Here's a free. Like, here's a free book I got from Ken Ham. But anyway, <laughs> never, never mind. <laughs> Oh boy. Let's, let's cut that there part. There we go. Let's reel this one in. So, uh, let me, I'll just throw out one more thing. Is we've talked about a lot of this stuff I, I kind of wanted to discuss with you already, but let me, I, I, this, I, this one statement you made struck me. You said a lot of times when you're talking to high schoolers, you say something to, to the effect of care enough about your, your faith to continue to be curious about it. And I thought that was a yep. really great line. Um, I, I get this all the time when I'm teaching. Uh, e- even in an adult setting, which is usually where I'm teaching, is you know it, it's like the 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 very basic parts of the faith uh, we we can agree upon and and are kind of settled matters if if you will we may not understand yeah. all the implications but the, these are pretty settled but then there there comes this point where people begin to in in class they'll say well it's not really that important is it you know if it's not yeah. if, if it's not outside and so I really like that idea. And I'm going to use. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I'm going to steal that line, because you know that's that's part of it. Is let's continue to. to, There's a place to continue to evaluate our faith and to think about the the implications of it that that don't just kind of say, oh, you know, I've got the basics and that's all I really need. I thought that was a really great way to express that. So I, I, um, so I live kind of in the tension, uh, Brian, of two different classes that I've taught here at Ozark. So one class that I've taught pretty consistently is, is apologetics, like I've mentioned. Okay. And in apologetics, you really do want to, you want to create an environment where it's safe to ask questions and actually where questions are encouraged, you know, where you're, you're putting your faith to the test, you're, ask, you're asking and hopefully trying to answer some difficult questions, um, maybe even readjusting or calibrating the the questions that you're asking, because you ask one question, you realize, eh, that's kind of the wrong question. I'm, right. I need to ask, ask something. But, but basically, in apologetics, you need to create an environment where questions are acceptable. You're not ashamed of questions. You're not terrified of questions, right. whatever. I also teach a class on the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. At least I have 
for a long time. I'm, I'm not teaching it currently. But of course, the book of Hebrews is a book dedicated to persevering in the faith. Right. Um, maintaining your commitment, especially when you're weary, when you're tired. And so we, we currently live in this moment, as both of you know, where it's been in the news, but it's not just been in the news. It's been in our own homes. It's been in our own churches, right. you know, people disaffiliating from religion, people yep. deconverting from Christ. Like that's been a big topic of conversation. And it's, it, that conversation has put me, it's, it's put me right in this tension where I want to tell people, yes, please care enough about your faith that you're curious about it, that you're asking questions. If you want to use the word deconstruct, I don't think you're using the word in the right way, right but way. if you want to use that word, then go ahead and use the word. But yes, ask questions, okay? But but don't forget in the process of asking your questions to question even your questions, to, to mm. doubt your doubts, to be right. skeptical about your skepticism. Because at, at the end of the day, there is nothing more precious, there is nothing more valuable, there is nothing more life-giving than faith in Jesus. Right. And so I kind of live in this tension, as most of us probably should live in this tension between I want to be curious about my faith, but at the same time, um, I need to maintain yeah. a resilient faith in the midst of my questions and my doubts and whatever. Appreciate that. I'm going through uh, Hebrews right now in our adult Sunday school at church, and I've actually used a couple of your videos that you have uh, on. Um, right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Those are those are good, and it's a good good thought there. Anything else on the book, Ryan, that you wanted to? Ask no, I just about? I I think. I don't know if I have anything to ask about it. I think it's a good place to start. You know, and I think that's the 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 point you made. And I thought, and Brian's already brought this up, is like writing the three sentences. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's oftentimes it's people have never thought that far. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I know what I believe. And you're like, well, write it down. Like, you wow. know, write down that three sentences and kind of going, whoa, like, how do I articulate? And I think, you know, and it becomes kind of its own. It, it helps people become curious about, well, what do I believe in, in some of that? And I, and I like the, the nibbling on the edges. I've done that uh, that exercise with all sorts of different audiences, and it it works with almost every I audience. Bet. It'd be fascinating to see some um, of the answers. I bet. What uh, years ago I was at a camp out in Colorado, and I asked this group of high school students to to do this exercise because I think it's a good clarifying exercise. Right. And uh, I always ask for feedback afterwards, like, "Hey, who's brave enough to actually re read right. their par their paragraph out loud or whatever?" So I asked this group of high school students and. You know, one, I got one or two people to respond and what they wrote was fine. And then I, I called on this one guy in the front row. I'm like, well, what did you write? And uh, he said, well, I only needed two sentences. You get, you gave us three. I only needed two. Sentences. I'm like, all right, that's fine. Um, so, so hit me with it. What, what are your, uh, what are your two sentences? His first sentence was essentially John 316. Okay. Kind of paraphrased John 316. I'm like, well, that's, that, that's, that's a good awesome. one. That's yeah. Great. Um, you know, what's your second sentence? His second sentence was, don't take my guns. And I'm wow. like, oh, okay. Well, this just went in a really, really weird and kind of alarming direction. <laughs> right. Um, so as a, as a teacher. So that's the centrality. Right, that's, you know, love. As a teacher kind of transitioning the class out of that awkward moment back <laughs> into someplace a little bit more. Yeah, it was weird. God I thought it was going to be like referred to sentence one or something like that. But God, no, God, God so loved the world, but I need my guns. So. Right. Me, don't take my guns. Don't that take he my gave guns. his own his only son and firearms. <laughs> anyway, well, the 
Yeah, I think I think it is a good good exercise, something to think about. Now you've mentioned apologetics, so I want to kind of transition into to another yeah. part of what we wanted to talk to you about. And and you've taught apologetics. Let me ask first of all, kind of what kindled your interest in that initially, or and when did you start first starting in, um, interested in apologetics, and why? And and I, the other question I'm I'm interested in is why have you maintained that interest? Why does it continue yeah. to be an interest to you? I I think for anybody interested in apologetics, there's usually there, I think there's two commonalities for, for people who are interested in apologetics. One is testimonial. So most people who are interested in studying apologetics have something in their past Hmm. that spurred them on to this particular study. So in other words, apologetics started as a personal pursuit. Okay. And, and that was true for me. So I had a, a tragedy happen in our family um, as a high school student. You know, I grew up in the church, but I had, I had the type of faith that a lot of church kids have. Right. It was just kind of an assumed, um, kind of apathetic type of faith. More Honestly, more of a cultural Christianity than anything else. And uh, that event in my family forced me as a 17-year-old kid um, Losing my sister in a car accident was what it was. As a 17-year-old kid, I was forced for the first time in my life to regard my faith seriously and to ask. I was asking difficult questions. I never came close to what people would call like abandoning the faith or, you know, whatever. But but I was definitely asking hard questions and I needed good answers. And that sent me into, um, you know, pursuing different books, asking different you know, mentors and wise people in my life. You know, I just became really interested in this whole discipline of trying to answer the questions that people are asking. Um, The other, the second common thread though, that I've noticed is people who are interested in apologetics are kind of cut from a particular cloth. Um, They, they tend to like things like um, philosophy. They tend to like things like history um, they, they tend to have a faith that is, if you have a spectrum of rationality to, uh, emotionality, right. if that's a word, they tend to be more towards the rationality end of the spectrum. Kind of thinking, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking, feeling. Mm-hmm. That's probably a more natural way of putting it. than <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't correcting you. I was just yeah. offering a different, um, different way to think. But, about it, so. so I have students, I have students in my class, Brian, that I just know ahead of time, like, this student yeah. is not wired the way that I'm right. wired. They're not going to care and about the, the, these things right. in the same kind and of I'm, way. And I, I always try to be sensitive to that. Right. You know, but I also challenge my students, like, even if you're not wired this way, you at least need to tr- attempt to understand the way that people are thinking about these things. Right. Um, but, but I'm just wired in a certain way that I love. I love philosophy. I love, I love logic. I love reasoning. And I, I love demonstrating that the faith that we have is not irrational that it actually, we can't answer every question completely, but there are good reasons to believe what we believe. It stands up. Yeah. Yeah. So what the maintaining, how would you describe then the maintaining that interest then over, over the long term? Just it's, there's just so much good stuff out there. You know, it's just, you never, I don't know. I mean, I'm a professor you know, I know, I know, you know what this is like, Brian, it's just, you're a curious <laughs> learner anyway, you right. know, you, and so you kind of get your fingers into a particular field or into a particular discipline. 
and you know that you're never going to completely master it. And actually that excites you. That right. spurs you on to to want to learn more about it. And that's how my journey with apologetics has been. Do I started like like a lot of high school kids. I started like Josh McDowell, you know, right, like sure. more than I, a carpenter. Or, yeah. It's, his yeah. ministry because I think he's done oh, a lot of good. It's huge, yeah. Yeah, and like you know the Lee Strobels and whatever. Like that's that's usually the appetizer right. for a lot of apologetics types of stuff. But it just sent me down this path where right. I discovered so many like articulate um, thinkers and and you know just um, philosophers, apologists through the years that have just inspired me. And it's just yeah, do you I love it? Do you find yourself? going from question to question or have you kind of like, is there one question you've continued continually come back to and wrestled with or a little both? Yeah. Um, first of all, one of the reasons that I, I love apologetics is because apologetics is contextual. That's that one of the first days of my apologetics class. That's why I tell my students the reason, one of the reasons why people don't like apologists sometimes is because apologists like to hear the sound of their own voice. And, and so um, they give off this vibe of being the one expert who has kind of everything figured out. Right. And, um, and they're just interested in fighting and arguing and having debates and whatever. But good apologetics is always contextual. In other words, it, it beckons you to listen to the, the questions that are being asked and to respond appropriately. And so one of the things that I've always love to do as an apologist is just talk, especially to high school students, just have them pepper right. me with like, Hey, I'm a safe person. Um, just pepper me with all of your best questions. And I'm not up here trying to say that I'm going to have a f- absolute answer to every single question that you have, sure. but at least I can help you kind of think through the question. Cool. So that's my approach to apologetics. My approach to apologetics tends to be very kind of dialogical, and textual and that's um, good. but then the particular area of interest that I have, Brian, is growing up, I was super interested in science and I still am to, to some degree or another. I also love history. Right. And science and history are part of apologetics. But more than anything else, I gravitate towards the philosophical side of apologetics. Right. Right. Um, that's that's really my approach. So students in my class are sometimes disappointed. I spend very <laughs> little time. Talking about dinosaurs. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I spend very little time debunking Darwinism and stuff like that. It's just, it's, you know, there's other apologists that have that approach. That's not my approach. My approach is very more philosophical. Philosophical. Yeah. Well, we've, we've, um, you you mentioned deconstruction and that's something we've touched on here a few times. And, and I, I mean, the interesting thing to me is that it seems like apologetics is a way to approach that, like you said, in a way that maybe even takes that, you know, understands that term in a different context, mm-hmm. but but gives us a way that we can question our faith and we can ask these kind of questions, but in a way that perhaps brings us back to the faith rather than you know yeah. uh, show how, how I say this, take taking great pleasure in in jettisoning parts of our faith. Yeah. Um, Here's here's a question. I really this is one of the main questions. I was when we, we we you agreed to be on on this podcast. This was one of the the main questions I wanted to ask you, and I think it's an it's an important one. And everybody not be may not be aware of this, but there's a lot of circles in which apologetics has fallen on hard times. Yeah. Uh, it, it it's pretty common, and it has been really for probably twenty years or more now, twenty five years, to kind of. Um, 
in certain circles to uh, kind of scoff a little bit of apologetics, to kind of play it down, to say it no longer has a real role. And, and I, I really would like you to respond to this in two ways, Chad. First of all, I, I'd like to hear you talk about why you think that's the case. Uh, you know, people, especially in the academy, seem to be saying this seems to be the consensus. You may disagree with this, but it seems to be the consensus. Apologetics doesn't even really have a helpful role anymore in the academy. Yeah. So why do you think that's the case? And then the other thing I guess I would like to hear you say is how you would con continue to say apologetics is important and relevant in our, in our context. Well, I'll, <clears throat> I'll answer the second question first. Okay. Um, um, the people who say that apologetics no longer has any relevance or whatever, what I would just ask them to do is spend a little bit of time in located church ministry. Mm, okay. Talk to a high school student. Um, talk to people who are legitimately struggling with living in a hyper sec uh, secularized culture. Right. Trying to maintain faith in God in the midst of that culture. Go talk to those people. Talk to people who are far away from Jesus and then come back and tell me that having answers to the questions that skeptics ask is irrelevant. Okay. Frankly, I just think that that whole position is elitist okay. and disconnected from the real world that people live in. The real world that I live in, people ask questions. Right. And if you're not able or willing to a, even attempt to, to offer answers to those questions, you're not going to be taken seriously. And so it, it is personal to me because I, you know, I teach apologetics and, you know, I, I want to defend apologetics as a discipline, but I just, I just think it's foolish. It's foolish to, to assume that we now live in an era where answering questions, that's all apologetics is. Apologetics is just answering, attempting to answer questions that skeptics ask. That's all right. it is. Right. So in what world is that not relevant, you know? Now, the reason why it's attacked, I don't know. I think the, the, <laughs> the, attack, the attacks come from different, different sources sure. and different uh, reasons, you know? So like, I have some friends who are very reformed in their theology. And of right. course, reformed thinkers don't love apologetics, although there are several very prominent reformed, reformed apologists, apologist, right. uh, Tim Keller being a recent right. example. Um, but they have a theological objection, which honestly I'm sensitive to. I, I can I can appreciate their theological objection. Their theological objection is, do we run the risk of placing human reason um, as sort of an arbiter of faith? Right. That that reason actually reason gets in the way of faith. And and honestly, that's that's an objection that apologists probably need to hear, even if you're not reformed. You you need to be more humble in your assertions. And you need to recognize that human reason is not the final arbiter of truth when it comes to God. Right. Um, there are other criticisms of apologetics um, that I, I call in-practice criticisms, which actually I agree with. There's a yeah. lot of apologists that are frankly just embarrassing. Um, <laughs> um, they're embarrassing for their methodology. They're embarrassing for their disposition. Right. Um, they're embarrassing because they're an they're answering questions that haven't been asked in 20 years, right. you know. And so there's some people that object to apologetics just because they're dealing with an outmoded um sort of irrelevant way that apologetics has been practiced. And what I want to tell those people is like any other discipline, there are good ways of doing it and there are bad ways of doing it. 
but you don't just dismiss an entire discipline because some people don't do it very well. Um, apologetics is, it goes back to the new Testament, right? Jesus did apologetics. Paul did apologetics, you know, so it has a place. We just need to do it better. Okay. Um, and then the third reason just really quickly that some people don't like apologetics is if I can be so brave, Brian, it's, I think intellectual snobbery. Okay. Um, because apologetics is apologetics is very conservative insofar as apologetics actually believes that there's such a thing as truth and truth is worth advocating in the public square. And a lot of people that fashion themselves as academics, that is regarded as kind of passe, okay. um, not to be taken seriously, which is a shame, but it is, I think the case with some. And this may be what you're getting at here, but you know, kind of, there are some who would call apologetics a modernist enterprise. I, I absolutely right. hear what you're saying. It goes back to scripture. I understand, you know, the word apologia, all, all that yeah. stuff, but, but, uh, that it's kind of a modernist enterprise. It was that search for truth. And now that we're in a, a condition or, uh, an atmosphere of post-modernity yeah. perhaps, or hyper-modernity, however you want to define that, um, that, that it is now not the, the best way to, to yeah. approach. So I got to tell you this story. When I first started teaching apologetics, I was asked to, um, lead a, or, uh, invite a lecturer to campus okay. to do an apologetics lectureship. That was one of my responsibilities. <laughs> and, um, and so whatever I did it, the first person that I invited though, wasn't really a person that I knew he was recommended to me by our missions department. Okay. And this is a guy who had done apologetics in, or he had, he, he had, done ministry in Saudi Arabia and the Muslim world for some time and did kind of apologetics types of things with Muslims. Right. So I'm like, Oh, that sounds interesting. We'll invite the guy in, hear him, whatever. First line, first words out of his mouth in this lectureship uh -oh. were apologetics is great. If you live in the 1950s. <laughs> in oh my gosh. <laughs> and you're like, uh, and you know, Strike. like, a third of our student body maybe is from Kansas, you know? <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, our, our students from Kansas are pretty tired of being the universal metric for lameness. Right. Um, but uh, in talking to my students later, I'm like, but did you understand what he was saying? What he was saying is apologetics as it's practice. As it's done in that, yeah. Is, is modernist a, yeah. a lot of times. And not, although I would argue a lot of people a lot of skeptics are still modernist and you got to have modernist answers yeah. to the questions that those skeptics yeah. are asking. I, I don't fit. Yeah. I don't fit well. In I, any, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Well, I, I, I just <laughs> say it is contextual to the time and place that you're living. And so yeah. if I'm talking to a person who's more postmodern, I, I got to adjust my, my conversation accordingly. That's what I was gonna say. I don't, I don't feel like I fit well in any of those categories. Yeah. Of, of no, neither do I. Yeah. I, Students ask me what I am. I'm like, well, it depends on what day you ask me. Yeah, that's right who I'm yeah. talking to. That's a very yeah. postmodern answer. <laughs> I suppose it is. I suppose it is. Well, thank, thank you for that. I think that's, I think it is important. And, and I, I, I'm the same way. You know, there was a point in time I was very interested in apologetics. I still am. There's still things that I, I pursue and read. I, you know, you know how it is. You begin to specialize though, and there's only so yeah. many things you can keep up with. So it's, yeah. it's good to have someone like you that has spent uh, this time uh, doing this. Uh, Ryan, what questions did you have regarding this? What did you want uh, to I, say? I don't know if I have a whole lot of questions regarding this. I mean, I think that's really, you know, that's the, the question is, is like defending the faith in a postmodern world is kind of, uh, I, I don't know. Do you think that's squishy? You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you look at that? You know, as if, yeah. as you look at a, a 
being an apologist from a modern perspective, like how do you see it now in our current context where <laughs> truth is relative? Oh, Ryan, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> well, we can so, head you back another time. <laughs> well, you asked about a question. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good question. That's a good so question. this this was literally a conversation that I had in apologetics yesterday. The shape of skepticism has shifted in the last 10 or 15, 20 years in ways that a lot of Christians aren't aware of. We're still we're still fighting against the Richard Dawkins of the world, the Christopher Hitchens of the world, whatever, the new atheists. The new atheists are no longer new. They're actually passe. The new shape of atheism, the new shape of skepticism, I think is represented by um, the Jonathan Heights of the world, the, the Jordan Petersons of the world, although I don't know what Jordan Peterson's personal faith is, but there is this new tendency amongst unbelievers in the academic realm to appreciate the Christian worldview kind of from the outside looking in and even appropriate parts of it when it's it's useful for their program. Right. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of what Jordan Jordan Peterson Peterson. and other Tom Holland is another example. Um, Not Spider-Man. Although no, 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 (laughs) so so there's this weird, we're at this weird moment with skepticism where there's a growing appreciation for what the the, the gospel story has done in Western civilization. Um, yeah. And there's also an attending fear about what happens when a whole culture turns its back on that. Right. That's what I was going to say. So, it's, so it, now it, I'm it, hearing skeptics and, <laughs> and atheists argue for the Christian story. Right. And Christians are embarrassed by it. By it. Yeah. It's just as a pragmatic thing, as a pragmatic right. thing for society. Right. So how do I approach apologetics today, Ryan? I honestly, I approach it from the human condition. Um, I I I've always loved guys like Blaise Pascal because I think that that's the way that he approached what what we would call apologetics too. Although he wouldn't, I think, consider himself an apologist, but um, approaching it from the human condition because people who are living in a postmodern culture they still sense the inherent brokenness of the world, the inherent brokenness of their lives. Um, They still long for transcendence in ways that seem inaccessible to them living in the the culture that they're, but they still long for these things, right? So so my approach to apologetics, especially in a postmodern audience, a postmodern world is, let's just talk about the human condition and let's talk about ways that actually the gospel answers for the human condition in ways that no other worldview or philosophy can answer. So that's the way that I approach it. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. The, and this, I, I wanted to ask, and, and, and what you just give us was, was fantastic. I really, really appreciate that. But is there, is there something, here's what I was going with. And I, I guess what I'm saying what you just said fits in into the question. I'm just getting ready to ask. What have you found in apologetics? Is there something that's particularly interesting or something you've come across recently that you're just, you just think is a really fantastic insight that you'd like to share? What do you think our listeners would really want to hear about this, this particular field, would you say? Yeah. Um, so I've been doing a lot of reading because I'm, because I'm an evangelical, I have to read Charles Taylor, Secular right. Age. That's basically for your audience, not aware, like any book that you pick up recently on culture or philosophy yeah. from a Christian perspective, they're quoting Charles Taylor. But it's, so, it's a th- 1100 pages or something. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, 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 a, a, it's a, it's a, it's a doorstop. So yeah. Um, but basically his whole idea is that we live in a disenchanted culture, right? 
and we're suffering from the consequences of that. And so um, a lot of books kind of have have fallen in in that wake. Um, maybe the best book that I've read in the last five or 10 years is Carl Truman's book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Right. Okay. And so one of the things that I do with my students, now keep in mind who my students are. My students are, they're Bible college students coming from uh, most of them being raised in the church, whatever. But they still have been deeply discipled by a particular culture, right? right? And so one of the things that books like Truman's book and Taylor's book, you know, one of the things that, that I do in my apologetics class is I just try to, you know, you know, the, the, uh, like when you're young and there'd be a Creek flowing in the back of your house and you'd go and there'd be a flat rock and you just flip over the rock to see what was underneath it. Right. right. To show all the creepy crawlies, whatever. That's what I kind of try to do <laughs> with the, the worldview presented in our culture. Okay. I want to flip over the rock and I want to show my students. Here's actually all the assumptions that are being made. Right. And here's the flaws in those assumptions. And here's where, here's where that philosophy leads if we're not careful. Base, so basically what I'm doing is I'm just trying to expose or bring to light the, the different narratives, right. the different worldviews that are being presented to them every day. And, and just asking the question, is that, where does that lead us? What does that assume? Um, how does that cohere with the gospel or how does that contradict the gospel? You know, so that's that's been my big point of emphasis lately is really cultural analysis, um, cultural criticism, so that students are wiser and savvier right. about the world that they live in. Which is kind of what we're going to get into this very last part of our, our podcast. But before we do that, let me give me one example of those assumptions. Can you give me one example of an assumption of our culture that you, you want to expose? Yeah, I mean, the the number one thing is what some uh, philosophers and sociologists have called expressive individualism, which is basically the idea that truth is truth is found on the inside. You just follow your own heart, right? right. Kind of what we would call solipsism in, in yeah. other time. Yeah, you just follow your own heart, and that's that's you know that's the pathway to truth. And colleges and universities, this is what they're teaching students now: that life's ultimate meaning is on the inside. It's in your heart. Right. And so we're not going to actually teach you anything about the meaning of life. We're just going to let you discover it on the inside. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, here's the illustration I like to use. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and uh, Ryan, inexplicably tomorrow morning, you wake up and you are floating on a raft in the middle of an endless sea. Okay. There's nothing on any horizon, okay? okay? You don't know how how you got there. You don't know where you're going. You just, all of a sudden, boom, you're there. Mm -hmm. What's the first feeling that you would have, Ryan? Not mm -hmm. the first thought, the first feeling. Shock. Like, where? Shock. Shock. How did I get here? What, like, what's yeah. going on? Despair. Despair, panic. Yeah. Anxiety. Fear, maybe. So, but you understand that situation you are perfectly free in that situation. You are untethered and unencumbered by anyone or anything else. You are you are the definition of free. Total agency. And it's, and it's, it's brought you nothing but anxiety and panic. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have, we talk about a mental health crisis among college age kids. Wow. Anxiety, depression. What's going on? Why is this happening? Well, basically, we've put them on a raft in the middle of an endless sea and said, hey, congratulations, you're free. You're free to discover life's meaning and life's purpose, but the only resources you have are Uh inside here. You're untethered from the church, from your school, from your family. You're untethered from everything. And then we're like, why aren't they happy? Right. Why Why are they so anxious? Well, it's because you've created an existential crisis for them, you know? And so that's the conversation that I find myself having more and more all the time, especially with college age students. I think it's super important. And that, that really leads us to this last section. You, Ryan, do you want, I've been talking a lot. Yeah. Do you want to take some yeah, of these? Yeah. And- so um, you also live kind of at, you're heavily, you've got two teenagers that are in yeah. high school. <laughs> so, and you're, you're in a Bible college. So you've kind of got this and you're pretty heavily involved with student ministry. You're not a student minister, but you're yeah. pretty involved. And so you have you did a video and you've written an article about this, but talk about the, like this. Uh, you see kids kind of at both sides. You see them before yeah. they get to a Christian college and you see them after they get to a Christian college. But wh- you talked about like some of the essential things that you think that we need to be teaching students in the church to prepare them for this uh, world. And I think, you know, you kind of talk about that, in a, you know, you're trying to flip over the rock a little bit, but mm-hmm. for kids that aren't going to Bible college or where else, but like, what do we, what do we need to be teaching our kids as you see it, you know, seeing both sides of the, the coin? Can I, can I give you just the big, the big picture? So I, I list in that, in that article, I list like 10 different things. Yeah. But the big picture, um, do you guys know David Kinnaman? Yeah, the name. So yeah. David Kinnaman's the president of Barna Research. Um, he and I talked um, several years ago as he was writing this book, Faith for Exiles. Um, the The theme of that book was basically how to um, what churches need to needed to do to create resilient disciples amongst young people. And so, your listeners, that would be a good book to pick up, especially if you're a parent, youth minister, whatever. It's called Faith for Exiles. And when we were talking about that book, um, we, you know, one of the things that we had in this conversation, we were talking about the dynamic between Jerusalem and Babylon. And, you know, in Jerusalem, um, or, well, let me put it this way. When Israel went into exile in the Old Testament, they were forcibly moved from Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, there was a whole generation of Israelites living in Babylon that still had a living memory of Jerusalem. They they remembered it, not by testimony, but by eyewitness. They were there. But then there was another generation that was actually born in Babylon. And the only thing they knew of Jerusalem was what they knew secondhand from listening to their parents, listening to testimonies from others. That's all they knew. And so, but they were being, um, they were being brought up in a culture, in a Babylonian culture that was far removed from Jerusalem. Right. So there was this generational divide. And I've, I've talked to friends who are like second or third generation immigrants to this country. And they've said the same thing, the same phenomenon exists in their families. I have a friend who's, who's from South Korea. He says, this is very prominent in their culture where the, the kids that are born and raised in the United States they have a hard time connecting with the culture 
of Korea because right. they weren't there. They're just learning about it secondhand. And so I think one of the mistakes, I'm, I'm Gen X, okay? I'm 44 years old. I have a vague memory of a world that didn't exist very long ago, but it was a very different world than the world we're living in today. Right. I have to recognize my kids are growing up in a very different world than the world that I grew up in. Technologically, spiritually, politically, it's just a very different world. And so my job as a parent and our jobs as youth pastors is to actually recognize the fact that our students are growing up in a different world and prepare them for that world. And part of what that means is we have to stop making assumptions. Right. We have to stop assuming that our students know the same things that we knew or believe the same things that we've, we believed. We've got to stop making those assumptions and we've almost got to explain and defend everything to them so that they understand not just what faith is, but why faith is and what faith means for their lives. That's one of the things in Kinnaman's book. He says the main difference between disciples who are resilient and disciples who are not resilient is that resilient disciples have an integrated life. They understand how faith touches every single aspect of okay. their lives. Non-resilient disciples don't have that integration. Not just a matter of rote, but seeing how these things yeah. connect. Uh, that's, that's and so good. I would say the biggest principle, um, and it's kind of vague and we've got to work it out in different ways in our various contexts, but the biggest principle is recognizing the fact that our children are growing up in exile in ways that we didn't and preparing them for that world. So just to tease that out, what you're saying is there are times that we are um, directing our energies toward raising kids in a culture that no longer exists. Basically, we're I think that's true. I uh, think we're, that's true. Yeah, and, and I can see that clearly. You, you mentioned, and you're not going to believe this, but I'm a Gen Xer as well. I'm on the mm-hmm. other end. But uh, the interesting thing for me was my parents are much older. My parents yeah. were in their 40s when I was born, so they were from the builder generation. I yeah. basically I skipped my my brother and sister are boomers, but but you know my parents. Uh, peers were typically having boomer children. They had a Gen X. Yeah. And so huh. I can very clearly see the differences there. I yeah. kind of grew up with that with that uh, idea. But you're, what you're saying is in, in our youth ministries, even, even as we're um, discipling young people, that that we can't do it for the previous generation. We can't yeah. do it in the, sa- the, the same ways, the same kind of things that have worked in the past won't yeah. work in this context. Well, that's, two, that's important. two things that I mentioned specifically in that list are sex and technology. Right. Um, and, you know, if you're a youth minister and you're never having any discussions with your students about sex and sexual identity, and I, I realize, hey, it's scary. It's huge. It's, and it's dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in some, in some contexts to have that conversation. But if they're not learning a biblical sexual ethic at church, I guarantee you they're not yeah. learning it anywhere else. Yeah, I was, um, I, that struck me. I'm, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now, and this this week is uh, uh, anyone who's uh, you know you, you've heard that it was said, "Do not commit adultery." I tell you, anyone who's yeah. looked lustfully at a woman uh, has committed adultery in his heart. And and yeah, I was as I've been preparing that sermon, just again the sex the, the hypersexualization of our culture, and just yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah. You know? 
every even TV shows. You know, there was a time where there were TV shows that were almost kind of directly targeted toward sex, if you will, yeah. if you get what I'm saying. But now it's even even just TV shows that you happen to be watching because you're interested in the storyline or whatever will have this some kind of uh, yeah. you know storyline that has to do with deviant sexuality or you know some kind of a some kind of a, a different uh, approach. So well, this this could be a whole a whole yeah. other podcast, but. Um, yeah. There's there's a, a, a woman named Jean Twangy, um, who's a psychology professor out at San Diego State University. She wrote kind of the book on Gen Z. Um, she calls she calls that generation iGen, but um, yeah. but she wrote kind of the textbook on this generation. And what she says about this generation and sexuality is really interesting. Okay. Um, they're actually having less sex than previous generations. Um, but that's only because they are totally not totally, that's a strong word. They really struggle with intimacy, right? Um, intimacy on every level, intimacy, intimacy with family, with friends, with, with significant others. Right. And so they're choosing a life of isolation instead of a life of, of intimacy, um, which is giving them really kind of a twisted understanding of what sex, what sex is. is. Yeah. yeah, That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I, I was reading some things about in a very similar vein, not about that generation, but just, just that same concept that God created sex as a means by which we can experience this deep intimacy. Mm-hmm. And when it's divorced from that context, that's when it, when it brings in, yeah. uh, you know, shame, it brings in all these other, these other aspects. So yeah, very important. Yeah. I think that really struck home with me. Yeah. Else, Ryan, anything else? Uh, n- no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we just talked on some topics that we could talk about for forever if we really yeah, jumped and, into and, them. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, I thought I, I think what you said about this this younger generation is super important and uh, just one that we need to think about. So yeah, absolutely. Well, Chad, well, Chad thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Chad, thanks for uh, being here. I'm just going to say the same thing Brian was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah I appreciate that. that. How can and they? How can they find out more about you? And and I mean, you're working you on plug so, something you want to plug here. Um, I, uh, I blog, uh, I know that's old school, but, um, I blog context, at, context. <laughs> at, uh, chadragsdale.com. So, um, I blog not, it's not on a scheduled basis, but every once in a while I'll throw a blog up there, uh, chadragsdale.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm working on some other projects. I'm actually working on a book related to Hebrews and perseverance right now, oh, cool. but I don't know when that's going to come to fruition. Um, right now at Ozark, we're just working on getting a graduate uh, studies program launched. Nice. So that's happening in the fall. Very so that's cool. keeping me plenty busy. But very cool. Um, anyway, yeah, good things are happening. That's good. Excellent. Good, good to hear. And your podcaster, too, we should mention. I, oh, I, we didn't right. mention I that. Should, I should plug my nope, podcast. Nope, nope, This is the only podcast that exists. <laughs> it's, uh, it's called Every Thought Captive Podcast. I, we're on a little bit of a hiatus right now because one of our guys is on sabbatical. But, um, but we hope to be starting it up again pretty soon. So. Every thought captive is ETC. Is that how how they yeah. find that? Or and yep. so, yeah. When you're not listening to the Bible Bistro, when when you when you're jonesing for a podcast <laughs> and you're waiting for next Tuesday to come around, you can go yeah. back and listen to ETC. Yeah, yeah. So. absolutely. Well, well thank thanks, you, Chad. Chad. Yeah, yeah, really good stuff. Appreciate uh, what you've had to say, and thanks for taking your time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, yeah, spend some time. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. Bye bye. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com and find links there to follow us on social media. 
If you've been a listener of ours, you've probably heard Brian talk about John chapter 2 and the story of Jesus going into the temple and flipping over the table of the money changers. I've called it Jesus cleansing the temple. That's usually what's above the paragraph in our Bibles. But Brian doesn't call it that. Brian has mentioned it several times. So in next week's episode, I'm forcing Brian to explain himself and what he really thinks is going on in John chapter 2 if it isn't Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, as is sometimes written in our Bibles there in that paragraph. So should be a fun and interesting conversation. Uh, We hope you'll join us for that. Thanks again for listening and sitting with us at the table in the bistro. We'll be back next Tuesday.